Certain information set forth in the podcast may contain forward-looking statements under applicable security laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance, and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. LifeSci Advisors and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in the podcast should circumstances or management's estimates or opinions change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or solicitation to buy securities and does not constitute investment advice. The great advantage of being public is the access to capital is a lot easier. It doesn't take you five to six months to do a fundraising round like it does as a private company. You can do something really quick, but there's lots of distractions that you have to make sure you're prepared to tackle head on. Hello, my name is Neil Canavan, and this is Bench Talk Bios podcast series by LifeSite Partners, where we introduce healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. My guest today is Abid Ansari. He is the CFO of Arteos Pharma. Abid, welcome to Benchtop Bios. Hey, Neil. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. So in keeping with the mission of Benchtop Bios, which is to get to know people running the company, let's start with the grounding on the company itself. So, Abed, give me the elevator pitch for RTS. Where are you headquartered? Yep. How long have you been in business and what kind of business are you doing? Sure. So, RTS is headquartered in Cambridge in the UK. We have roughly 70 to 80 people located in Cambridge in the UK. Our laboratories are there. Most of our management team, our CSO, our CMO, our CEO, they're all there. We also have an office in New York City. So, Tanya Dimitrova, our chief business officer, is there. I'm actually located in Raleigh, North Carolina, but majority of our operations are in Cambridge and then a small amount in New York and the U.S. Arteos was founded in 2016. We are a DNA damage response company. The company is led by two individuals, Neil Martin, our CEO, and then Graham Smith, who was also on one of your podcasts recently, our CSO. They are the co-inventors of Limparza. Olaparib, the PARP inhibitor, oh, wow. AstraZeneca is currently marketing in breast cancer and a variety of other tumor types. So that really is the foundation of the company. We started in 2016. We currently have two assets in the clinic, an ATR inhibitor, a very exciting first-in-class all-theta inhibitor, and then our DNA damage response platform called the Decoder platform. So that's just the 22nd version of the company. <laughs> We'll touch just a bit more about the science in a minute. But as you said, if you want a deeper dive on the science, I did do a podcast with Graham, and he is the man with the molecular plan. So <laughs> I encourage listeners to also listen to that after this. I want to get more on RTS in a few minutes, but first, we're going to talk about you. I'm going to get really basic here, sir. Where did you grow up? So, yeah, I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio. Got two older brothers, my dad and mom. We all settled in Cleveland, Ohio, and that's where I was born and raised. So we agreed up front not to talk about sports because that's a sore point there in Cleveland. How about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? How many times have you been? Well, listen, the sports is not a sour point for me. I am a diehard Guardians, Browns, and Cavs won the championship Cavs, in 2016. Okay. So those are my sports teams. I love them, good or bad. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is great. Downtown has been through a renaissance the past really five to 10 years. And it's beautiful. Yes. Despite what folks may hear, Cleveland is an awesome city. And there's a lot of millennials and some of the younger generation that are coming to live in Cleveland. It's a really affordable place, and there's lots of great suburbs and things to do in Cleveland. So I'm a huge champion for the city. 
Yeah, I was there not long ago. It reminds me of the renaissance that's going on in Philly. There's just all the industrial stuff is being redone. It's very, very pretty. Okay, so while you were there in Cleveland, you went to high school, one assumes, I'm going to go in my time machine and find some of your friends in high school and say, hey, you know what? This guy is the CFO of a biotech company. Would all of them be like, yeah, that figures? What would they say? That is a really good question. I think some of them would say, yeah, yeah, that kind of figures. But I think others, you know, I was pegged to kind of go the engineering route. Oh. Both of my brothers were engineers. My middle brother was a chemical engineer, Asif. My oldest brother, Amir, is a software engineer at Rockwell. And coming out of high school, it was sort of the thing that my dad and my mom wanted me to do. So I went to Purdue University. We all of us went to Purdue University, my brothers and I which was about six hours west of Cleveland, Ohio. And there I started off my life as studying chemical engineering. Well, I will call out Purdue as not only a very old university, 1869, that John Purdue founded this place. And it's one of the best public schools in the nation, and especially when it comes to engineering. So you got your degree in chemical engineering, 2001. And this even included an internship with ExxonMobil. So that's kind of cool. I've heard of them. And after that training and experience at Exxon, you say to yourself, that was so much fun. I think I'll just go into finance instead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you stayed at Purdue for your MBA. So what the hell? Engineering, yeah. your, your brothers are like, yeah, go, go, go. And you're like, nah. Well, my dad was, to be totally fair and honest, I mean, he was dead set against me going into finance and, and going to get my MBA. He really wanted really? all of us to, yeah, to progress and, and become engineers. It was sort of the safe kind of least risky path. Anybody who gets a four-year engineering degree typically comes out and makes pretty good money and does pretty well yeah. for themselves. But what happened with me is actually on one of those internships at ExxonMobil, I'll never forget this, they had me do a discounted cash flow analysis. So a DCF, an NPV analysis, a net present value analysis, mm -hmm. a really small capital project. It was this $15,000 mass flow meter or for one of the manufacturing facilities. And I'll never forget it because I started doing that calculation and my mind sort of had this aha moment. I became kind of fascinated with finance. I started to ask myself, okay, I could do this calculation and start to think about buying a manufacturing facility or acquiring Chevron or another oil company. So my mind started going off and asking myself all these business-like questions. And that's when I first sort of developed a passion for finance. And I decided to get my MBA from there. All right. Well, you must have done pretty well because you got picked up pretty much right out of school in 2003 by a company called Imperial Chemical Industries. This is based in the UK, but their office is in Delaware. You were there for three years. So you're at your MBA. You didn't have really much experience at all. So after you get in this corporate situation, did you find yourself in situations like, but they didn't teach me this in MBA school? Yeah. The, or learning curve? Oh, man. I have lots of, gosh, just, I didn't know what the heck I was doing moments. <laughs> One of the first things I learned was you got to really, really know your audience. Right. And I'll never forget this because the first week I was at ICI, I was taking a tour of the manufacturing facility that I was supporting. And that manufacturing facility had over 100 union employees there. And none of them knew that I had an engineering background or that I knew anything about process engineering. I mean, everybody looked at me and said, okay, this is the finance guy coming in. Right. And so during that tour, 
I saw sort of a vat, a chemical vat, and it had the word flammable on it. And I remember asking the operator that was giving me the tour, I said, you know, what, what kind of chemical is in there here in the operating room that's flammable? And my brain was going back to all the organic chemistry. Solvents and, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all that sort of stuff. And I was just trying to guess in my head what that could be. So a week later, I show up to work and HR calls me into their office. Jeff Stanley, he was the head of HR, also a Purdue grad. He was one of the guys that hired me. And I'll never forget this. He said, Abed, the FBI has come to the office what? and they'd like to question you. What? And I was just, I was completely just blown away. And you've got to remember in his defense, right? This was few years after 9-11. Oh, yeah. I have a Middle Eastern name. Oh, and oh. so he assumed the worst and he called the FBI. Now, you also have to remember that I was very early in my career. And so I was the youngest guy on the management team, the youngest person on the management team. And so I was also very sensitive. I'm coming in there. I want to do a good job, show yeah. people I know what's going on, all that sort of stuff. And he told me the FBI was at the office. I got real worried. I said, you know, are they going to come to my desk and like haul me away in front of all my coworkers? Oh and my God. fortunately, I'll never forget the Jeff Stanley and Matt McDonald. They were at ICI really, really supportive. They told me, they, listen, we told the FBI they should talk to you outside of work, in the confines of your home, away from your coworkers, so on and so forth. So everything turned out fine. The FBI agent was a super nice guy. He rattled through his 20 standard questions that he's got to ask people in these sorts of situations. But he did tell me actually that for a week, they hung out outside of my townhouse. Oh my God. I just kind of watched <laughs> what I was doing, <laughs> where I was going. And all of this as a function of, again, me just not knowing my audience and really asking the wrong type of question and that like, sort of Like, story. hey, will that thing blow up? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't ask that. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to ask that to this particular person at wow. this particular time. So that's something that I learned really early in my career. And just one other thing was super valuable is you got to figure out a way to stretch yourself earlier in your career. And by stretching yourself, you're going to make a lot of errors right? You're going to mess up a lot. But sometimes you got to do things that are outside your realm of responsibility. And the likelihood is that you will mess up, but it's from those experiences that you're going to learn a ton and you're going to learn to do things outside your comfort zone. I mean, I'll never forget coming out of business school. So I managed four or five employees in this first role at, at ICI. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't know how to manage. And I'll never forget it. We were eliminating a role, a lady on my team. And to eliminate that role, it was one of the worst conversations I've oh, ever had. Geez. I didn't prepare for it, right? I didn't think about it. I didn't realize how sensitive the conversation was. Mm -hmm. And I went in there and treated the conversation in the moment like I was at college party. Hey, how are you doing? How's everything going sort of thing? And you don't learn these things, right, in engineering school. You don't learn these things in business school, even. Those are things that just come with experience, right? And I'll never forget it, because now when you go through these sorts of really sensitive HR-type moments, you got to prepare yourself. you got to think about what you're going to say, what you're going to talk about, how the other person is actually going to feel. You don't learn about feelings in engineering, right? Right. So those are two big things that I learned early on in my career that have really helped me, I think, throughout my experiences with Metamune and GSK and Precision and now RTOs.
I got to tell you, I think easily the biggest lie out there or one of the biggest in the world is that business is business. Business is always personal. You know? Very much. All right. So thank you for sharing that. That was really nice. So after that, you moved on to what I'll call a little startup called GlaxoSmithKline. Your last position there was a senior director of deal finance and M&A worldwide. And one of your big wins was to negotiate the acquisition of BMS's HIV portfolio. This was over a billion dollar transaction. I think I know from your FBI story that you can sort of stand your ground. You're not entirely unflappable. But during a billion dollar transaction, did you lose some sleep? Maybe lose a few pounds, maybe? Or was it? Yeah, it was definitely a busy time in my career. I would say working on the HIV acquisition with the deal team at GSK, there were a lot of financial components to that acquisition, thinking about how much you're going to pay up front, how you're going to think about certain milestones, when those milestones are going to hit. And there's quite a significant financial component to the deal. Fortunately for us, the HIV business at GSK at the time and still, which is called Vive, they were performing quite well. And mm-hmm. so there were obvious synergies between the HIV business at Vive and then also the assets that we were acquiring from BMS. So I think that really helped. But yeah, there were quite a few financial components for us to iron out, which made a few late nights trying to get the deal across the finish line. Well, congratulations, you did do the deal. There's another couple of companies I want to mention before we get into RTOs, mostly because I'm very familiar with both of them. One used to be a client at a company I worked for, which is called Adapt Immune. You did a, a deal with them. So that's strictly in the immunotherapy wheelhouse, which is where I live most of the time. And then you spent four years at Precision Biosciences. This is a next generation gene editing company that's got some good news of late. And this is even closer to home for me because the CMO is a guy named Chris Heary. Did you know Chris? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Chris. I uh, worked with Chris while he was the CMO at Precision. We play catch together. He probably lives about 10, 15 minutes away from me. So, uh, okay, cool. Yeah, so Chris is a great guy. We still text every once in a while. He's doing great things at our cell, it's for sure. All right, next text, mention me if you would. Just say, Neil says, hey. <laughs> Definitely will. All right, so you worked on their IPO. Tell me this process. Is this a formulaic thing to do, like submitting a board package to a co-op? Or you have to be sort of creative in this thing. <laughs> no, I mean, I definitely don't think it's formulaic. There's lots of nuances involved with taking a company public. From my perspective, there's really three key things that you've got to think about when you're taking a company public. The first is who are the banks that you're going to work with? And what's the rationale behind choosing the banks that you're going to choose to work with? The second thing is just when is the right time to go public, mm-hmm. right? There's a couple things involved in that question. There's how the company is thinking about value creation, how the company is thinking about raising money, how much money you're going to raise. And then really important is how is the company setting itself up for share price performance after you do go public, mm-hmm. right? And those three things on that last point, they often can be at war with one another, so to speak, right? So if you're heavily focused on being a billion dollar IPO and raising two to 300 million, maybe you're not creating enough demand after the company does go public to help your share price. So I definitely don't think it's formulaic. There's lots of different variables and things to consider. You also have to make sure that you've got the right team in place in order to operate as a public company, right? You've got to be more regimented in terms of the clinical data that you're communicating to the public. 
You've got to be more regimented in all the SEC reporting that you've got to do. To a certain degree, you almost become a servant to Wall Street in some respects. Mm-hmm. So I think there's lots of different things to consider as you're thinking about an IPO. All right. I'm going to talk about IPO and relative to Artios in just a moment. But first, I want to ask you when you joined. So you came on board in January 2021. I know uh, Precision went through a shakeup of several different positions. I know Chris Heary left. Several, a lot of people left, actually. As far as you're going to Artios, who courted who? Yeah. So Artios courted me. I was in touch with a recruiter. I was working with Russell Reynolds, great recruiting firm. And they reached out to me and said, hey, there's this super exciting DNA damage response company that's thinking about the next phase of their company. And they'd be interested in talking to you. I started Googling what is DNA damage response. It started to look interesting to me. I think really important for me was just looking at the management team. I mean, if you look at our CMO, he's taken numerous drugs through clinical development Mm. into registration. Graham is a super experienced CSO. Neil's been a CEO for quite a few years. So that resonated with me. And then they had a really strong shareholder base. So for me, a lot of things lined up, strong science, strong shareholder base. And because of those things, I wanted to talk to the company and learn more. You, uh, to date, have gone through three rounds of financing. The Series C was in July of last year, $153 million, nice chunk. So who's giving you the money? Who are your shareholder base? We really have a great and very supportive shareholder base. The crossover round last year that was done in July of 2021, that was co-led. So Michelle Doig from Omega, she joined our board. And then from TCG Crossover, Chen Yu also joined our board. So they led the round. We also had participation from other significant investors, Deep Track Capital, Sofanova Partners, our existing shareholders all participated in the round. So just really a variety of investors involved with the company. Lots of strategics, Pfizer Ventures, AbbVie's been involved, Merck KGA, some of our early shareholders, SV Life Sciences, Andera, LSP. We really have a strong shareholder base and really a good mix between European investors who have been involved with the company since 2016, mm-hmm. and then now a little bit more of a U.S. flavor like Omega and TCG crossover. Okay. So you mentioned the IPO process. We talked about one specific example with Precision. You've been through it recently. How are you thinking about that if you are thinking about that with RTOs? The IPO is, if you look at our company and the type of shareholders we were able to attract in our Series C, the IPO more than likely you would think would be the next logical step. So we are in the process of preparing the company to make that transition from private to public. That being said, as I mentioned earlier, there's lots of factors that go into taking a company public. And one of the big factors is what's happening in the broader markets, right? So things like the Ukraine-Russia crisis, things like hyperinflation, things like the biotech indices not performing too well the past, really the past 12 (laughs) months. It's a nice way to put it, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's putting it mildly. So I think for us, we want to make sure we're being opportunistic about the right time to IPO. And there's a couple of things that we're looking at. Number one, you want the markets to rebound and perform better. And number two, It'd be nice to have one or two significant data-driven catalysts to help support going public. 
So you can imagine those are the things that we're thinking about, especially with respect to our ATR and our Pulse Data programs that we'd like to do and develop before we take the company public. You mentioned Catalyst. Anything in the near term? Yeah, so 2023 is going to be a really exciting year for us. We just started a phase two study with our Paul Theta program 4215 in combination with Pfizer's PARP inhibitor telezoprib. Mm-hmm. So depending on how we enroll, that should generate some interesting data in 2023 and the early part of 2024. And then with our ATR program, we're just now almost complete with the dose escalation portion of as a monotherapy for that program. And we've seen some really interesting clinical activity in that dose escalation study. So we're going to start a phase two study in a very specific tumor type that will be generating data from throughout 2023. Do you have your institutions picked out for that? Yeah, we do. So we're working predominantly with Sarah Cannon. Oh, great. Erica Hamilton, Sarah Cannon, then also MD Anderson. So Erica Hamilton is one of our PIs and then also Tim Yap from MD Anderson. Oh, Tim, right? Yeah. Oh, I like Tim a lot. Good. Nice. Nice grab. Okay. So I've asked you some about your cash. I'm going to ask a bit more about that as far as your runway, but I want a more general conversation first. You at GSK, obviously not a small place. Your precision, indeed a small place, or it was at the time. How do you think about capital allocations in one versus the other? I mean, when you're in a small company, do you have to be way more diligent about the dollars? Spending. I think you do. I mean, I think at a, as a small company, right? Because if you make a wrong move, for example, around capital allocation at a GSK, you've got billions and billions of dollars on your balance sheet in which you can right make dollars. other moves yeah. with, right? And more than likely, that small move isn't going to lead to tons of people losing their jobs or any significant change in your share price, right? You're right. a big beast. It's a big ship. You're going to move more slowly. When you're at a small early stage biotech, you have to be thinking about that next fundraising. I mean, almost all the time. Mm -hmm. And you have to be thinking about where you're going to be spending your capital that gives you the greatest likelihood of being able to do that next fundraise, right? And so more often than not, it's really around data generation. So how am I going to spend my money in a way that gives me the highest likelihood of generating data that's going to be meaningful enough to raise money? That's really the simplest way to think about and look at it. And there's multiple ways across the research and development portfolio that you can do that, right? You can be super hyper-focused on generating clinical data that de-risks a certain platform approach Mm -hmm. that allows you to communicate data at a scientific conference that you can then use to raise money. There's other data you can generate from your research portfolio. Let's say there's a new type of science that you're trying to develop that will allow you to execute a research collaboration with like a Merck or a Novartis or a Roche or or those sorts of things that gives you non-dilutive financing. So I think capital allocation at a small biotech, you really need to be thinking about your next financing event. And from my experience, the margin for error is much smaller. With my last question, I'm going to go directly to what we've just touched on, which is runway. I'm not going to ask you for a dollar amount, but if you can guesstimate your current runway and when you will be definitely considering that next round. So our current runway, we've got 140 million pounds, so roughly $200 million on our balance sheet. Nice. Yeah. So that extends our runway into Q1 2025. And that's why the Series C was so important, because given what's happened with the broader capital markets, 
we can really just keep our heads down and be ultra focused on both our ATR and our pulp data programs and the development of our platform without really having to worry near term about fundraising. So, so yeah, that's where we are with Runway in terms of the IPO. We'll see. Listen, I tell people this all the time. Taking a company public and being a public biotech, there's lots of distractions that generates for a company. And frankly, a lot of distractions that take away from the science and the clinical development. When I'm filing a 10Q, I've got to review that with our CMO. He has to review what we're saying about Mm -hmm. the data. When we're going to all these different healthcare conferences as a public company, I mean, the CSO or the CMO or the CEO, they need to come, right? They need to market themselves and present the company and present the data and present the science to the investment community. So I tell people this all the time. The great advantage of being public is the access to capital is a lot easier. It doesn't take you five to six months to do a fundraising round like it does as a private company. You can do something really quick. But there's lots of distractions that you have to make sure you're prepared to tackle head on. Excellent. One last question. Where can I meet you in person, a conference, a meeting somewhere that's coming up? So I'm based in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please come (laughs) to Raleigh. We've got great weather, great food, especially in the Durham and the downtown Raleigh area. Durham is just really booming. It's an awesome place to hang out with at the Bulls Ballpark and lots of cool places there. What about on the road? Yeah, on the road. So we'll see. I'm coming to London the first part of September for board meetings, investor meetings, those sorts of things. Healthcare conferences, I'll likely be in Minnesota, in Minneapolis at the Piper Heartland uh, conference. We'll likely do Evercore and potentially Piper towards the back end of the year in New York and Boston. I travel up to New York probably once every couple of months, so we'll definitely have to catch up. All right, We'll, we'll grab a drink in Midtown. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is a wrap. My guest today has been Abed Ansari. He is the CFO of Artios Pharma. And I will remind you once again, if you want to hear about the CSO and his science, that would be Graham Smith. And that is also on the podcast Benchtop Bios platform. Abed, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, Neil. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's Benchtop Bios. I hope that this episode will serve as yet another data point to guide you in your investment strategies. If you wish to hear more of Lifesize Benchtop Bios, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google. Also, if there's a company or a particular executive you'd like to get to know, I do take requests. Please send those to ncanada at lifesciadvisors.com. Until next week then, goodbye, or for that matter, good sell, whatever boosts your portfolio.